السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. You remember the last time we were discussing the theme of generation. We had reached the point where we were discussing rights of teacher or of scholar. So we will not do full recap of how we got here. Inshallah, it's clear. Simply to say that. Now that we have discussed the characteristics, the traits, the responsibilities of the teacher and the scholar, we want to see what our religion says about the rights of this person, keeping everything that we said in mind. So this person is the person, obviously, who meets these characteristics, who is fulfilling these duties and responsibilities, and our religion gave us a lot of these characteristics so that we identify this person correctly. So last time we met, we started to talk about the rights of the teacher or the scholar in Islam. And we discussed in general the importance of honoring, respecting this person. And we said that this can take different manifestations. It can look in very different ways, depending on the culture, depending on the time, depending on the society that we're in, so long as whatever behavior is suitable to say that, the person is being honored and respected. So inshallah, today we are going to continue with this topic. So the last subheading we were talking about is this, the importance of anything related to the gatherings of scholars. And if you will remember, I think we ended with the Dua al-Sahar, an extract, a passage from Dua al-Sahar in which Imam al-Sajjad was basically saying or teaching us to say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the reason perhaps why we keep finding ourselves being lazy and unable to move on and to fulfill our own aspirations of being more spiritual and being more committed to our own spiritual discipline, one of the reasons was that, as the Imam said, Okay, so the Imam was saying that perhaps when you look at the gatherings of scholars, you never found me there. And so you have forsaken me because you never find me in the presence of these scholars. So today, inshallah, we're continuing with that same idea or that same sub-theme, the idea of the importance of the gatherings, to being in the company of scholars, to going to them, to showing them honor by going to them, and to attending their gatherings and that whole theme as it is presented in different narrations in our religion. So the next narration from Imam al-Kadhim salam, and this is, as we have said, there's a very lengthy um, piece of advice, let's say, or a sermon or a hadith from Imam al-Kadhim salam to one of his companions, Husham. And uh, it is well known because the Imam, uh, in this, he lists a very large number of uh, pieces of wisdom, knowledge uh, that we find scattered across in different sermons and hadith and verses of the Quran. The Imam gathers a lot of those in one single very long hadith. Inshallah, one day we can talk about it in more detail. We've been taking pieces and parts of it throughout this whole series. So this is another one. So at some point, Imam al-Kadhim salam says that عن Isa alayhi salam للحواريين يا بني إسرائيل 
زاحم العلماء في مجالسهم ولو جثوا أو جثوا على الركب فإن الله يحيي القلوب الميتة بنور الحكمة كما يحيي الأرض الميتة بوابل المطر So Imam Al-Kadhim alayhi salam along in his hadith at some point he says Prophet Isa alayhi salam told the dis- his disciples O children of Israel engage with the scholars in their gatherings So this is our theme Okay, always be in the presence of these teachers or scholars, even if you have to crawl on your knees to get there. Or the other interpretation, even if you have to stay on your knees. You know, there's not enough room for you to sit, or even if you have to crawl on your knees to get there. For indeed, God revives dead hearts with the light of wisdom, just as He revives the dead land with rainfall. So, one important point here is clearly that the imam is saying being in their presence is accompanied with benefits one of these benefits is that your heart comes back to life that's what the hadith is saying these hearts die and one of the things that brings them back to life are gatherings where true knowledge is being shared this is the purpose of this hadith and the metaphor that the Imam is using or Prophet Isa salam is using, he says that there is a light. Wisdom has a light, right? There is nur al-hikmah. Wisdom has a light. And when it enters into the heart, it brings it back to life. Just as the rain revives, revives a dead land. There's a point that we can make here in this hadith when it talks about the fact that he says even if you have to be crawling on your knees to get there, for instance, according to an interpretation. In other words, as uncomfortable as it may be, as inconvenient as it may be, as difficult as it may be, make that extra effort. And in this, there might actually be something foretold and we find this a lot in our hadith. It's as though in a lot of cases, Prophet Isa knows that it's not always going to be comfortable to find these places where knowledge is being shared or where there is a true teacher or scholar sharing this type of knowledge. It's not always going to be the most comfortable, the most luxurious setting, the most easy place to get to. The place may not be, you know, the most comfortable. So, when they're going that far and saying, even if you have to be crawling on your knees, none of us, I think, have had to crawl on our, on our knees to get to somewhere where true knowledge is being shared. So they're going that far. So clearly in our lives, we don't need to go that far. But it is to say that sometimes we might think, but this is not a, the most comfortable setting. It's inconvenient for us to gather there. It's inconvenient for us to make the trip, to make the extra effort. They're saying make the extra effort. It's worth it because it's going to bring back your heart to life. There's a light that you get by being in this type of gathering, in this type of presence that will bring your heart back to life. So it's worth it. We can move to the next hadith. This next hadith, we can spend a lot of time on it. So depending on what I see from your interest, we'll decide how much we spend time on this. The Holy Prophet ﷺ, again, we're talking about the manners in which we honor and respect 
this scholar and we already saw a few of them. Some of them are mentioned in general and some of these ahadith are mentioned very explicitly. They mention very specific ways to honor and respect this person. So one of them has to do with the voice. The type of tone and voice that you use to address them or when you talk in their presence. So the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he says, مَنْ غَضَّ صَوْتَهُ عَنْدَ الْعُلَمَاءِ جَاءَ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ مَعَ الَّذِينَ امْتَحَنَ اللَّهُ قُلُوبَهُمْ لِلتَّقْوَى مِنْ أَصْحَابِي وَلَا خَيْرَ فِي التَّمَلُّقِ وَالتَّوَاضُعْ إِلَّا مَا كَانَ فِي اللَّهِ فِي طَلَبِ الْعِلْمِ So in short, the Holy Prophet ﷺ is saying, the one who lowers his voice in the presence of the scholars will come on the day of resurrection among those whose hearts God has tested for piety from among my companions. There is no good, so this is the second part of the hadith, there is no good in flattery and coaxing, bootlicking, right? Uh, except if this is for the seeking of knowledge for the sake of God. The second part we went through when we were talking about the importance of acquiring knowledge and we said we have a lot of ahadith that tell us go as far as you need to if it means you're acquiring knowledge. So this is where the second part came from. The Holy Prophet is saying flattery is not good unless you're trying to seek knowledge for the sake of God and you, by using flattery, you can get more of that knowledge or it's easier for you to get that knowledge than use flattery because the knowledge is worth it. Otherwise, flattery is not something we encourage in our religion. Okay, that was the second part. But the first part, so the Holy Prophet ﷺ is talking about lowering of the voice. The wording that the Holy Prophet is using can be directly found in the Holy Quran. There's a chapter in the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Hujurat, chapter 49. The beginning of this chapter starts to talk in general about how we're supposed to be with the Holy Prophet ﷺ. And then the second and third verses speak directly about the volume of our voice in the presence of the Holy Prophet. And this is the wording that the Holy Prophet uses in this hadith, is the same wording that we find in the Holy Quran. The Holy Prophet said, مَنْ غَضَّ صَوْتَهُ عند العلماء. In Surah Al-Hujurat, so the verse that is directly being referred to is, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَغُضُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ Okay, so truly those who lower their voices in the presence of the Messenger of God, they are the ones whose hearts God has tested for piety. They shall have forgiveness and a great reward. This is verse 3 in Surah Al-Hujarat, chapter 49. For this verse to really make sense to us, we have to see the general setting of this verse. The two prior verses, usually we have to look in Surah Al-Hajarat is made up, chapters are usually made up of sections. So these first five verses, they form one section in Surah Al-Hajarat. And there's a lot to say about it that we're not going to be saying now. We're just focused on this part of the theme that we find in these verses. So, the surah begins by saying, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, la tuqaddimu bayna yaday Allahi wa rasoolih, wa attaqullah, inna allaha sami'un alim. O you who believe, do not 
precede. Do not go before. Do not precede God and his messenger and fear God. Remember this and fear God. Truly, God is all hearing, all knowing. Okay, what does this mean? It can mean something like don't go before, as in don't give your opinions about things or don't answer before or don't make decisions before or don't give commandments before or instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger. If people are coming to ask the Prophet, let him answer. If there are things that are happening and the Prophet is among you and we need a decision, go to him first. Don't come up with answers from yourselves if you don't need to. The Holy Prophet is there and he represents God. And so that's why the verse said, God and his messenger. Don't proceed. Don't go. So don't give your opinion, don't give your decisions, don't give your answers, don't give your commandments before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't rush into it. Don't proceed. Don't take their place. Wait for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger to tell you and then you do what you need to do. The link here is therefore, and we're going to see it in the ahadith later today, the link here is therefore, if there is a scholar, don't answer before them. Let them give the answer. Okay? That's one. Then, the verse continues. This, this was the, the first verse, and inshallah one day we'll talk about why this verse was revealed. What happened? What was the context that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse telling the believers, do not go before God and His Messenger. There's a lot of interpretation and commentary to be made here. The second verse then says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَرْفَعُوا أَصْوَاتَكُمْ فَوْقَ صَوْتِ النَّبِيِّ وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بِالْقَوْلِ كَجَهْرِ بَعْضِكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ أَنْ تَحْبَطَ أَعْمَالُكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَشْعُرُونَ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now says, O oh you who believe, now it's going to start talking directly about the volume of our voice in the presence of the Holy Prophet. He says, O oh you who believe, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Prophet. And do not speak loudly to him as though you are addressing one another. Lest your deeds should become nothing while you are unaware. So in case this is not clear, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you do this, the risk that you're facing is that all of your good deeds become null. They're erased. You lose all of your good rewards, all of your deeds. For having done what? For having raised your voices in the presence of the Holy Prophet Okay, so we have to spend a little bit more time on this. It seems a very harsh, very strong, very serious threat that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making here. So, in short, first, the instructions that we find in this verse. And I don't have time to go through the word-by-word -word commentary. If we did, you would see the verse is, is saying two things. At some point it says, لا ترفعوا أصواتكم فوق صوت النبي That's one. ولا تجهروا له بالقول So don't raise your voices. That's one. And there are commentaries and interpretations on what that means. 
And the second one is And don't use a loud voice, a strong voice, either addressing him or calling him or in his presence. So all of that falls in this verse. When you are in the presence of the Holy Prophet, if you are calling him, do it in a gentle, respectful, honorable tone. If you're calling him, calling his name. And some commentators here have said, do not call him Muhammad as they used to, without any titles. This is the prophet of God. This is the messenger of God. He's not just another man among you. That they would stand behind the wall, as the Quran says, and they would just yell out his name, Muhammad, as though you're calling your friend. Okay, so the whole Quran is saying, don't call him out in a loud, disrespectful voice and in a disrespectful way. That's when you're calling him. When you're addressing him directly, don't raise your voice. When you are talking with each other in his presence, don't raise your voices. Okay, so all of this is being said in this. It's mentioning, basically, it's listing the different etiquettes and manners of using your voice in the presence of the Holy Prophet and addressing him and referring to him. Okay, then after this, the Quran says, So here the Holy Quran is now saying, giving us a reason, giving us an explanation from all of this. Out of honor, out of respect for him, do not address him as though you address one another. Okay, so this is very important. Therefore, honor and respect, and in this case, by lowering your voices. And by the way, if we take a little bracket, last week we started to talk about this. The same thing can apply here. If we go back to the narrations, the same thing can be said about the Holy Prophet or the Imams. The same thing was said when they enter into the room. What did the Hadith say? Never be shy or ashamed of standing for your parent or your father and your teacher. They transfer, they take that honorable, respectful behavior and they transfer it. And we explained why and we explained a lot of the reasons around it. Here the same thing is happening. And if you go back to the ahadith, you will have very specific ahadith, again, about specifically those two categories, the parent and the teacher. They will say, do not raise your voice with the parent, the father, and the mother. The same thing that the verse is saying here, our religion says, transfer these same teachings to your parents, to the father and the mother. When you address them, address them with the right title, with the right tone of voice, in the right way. When you're talking to them, when you're talking to each other in their presence, it can't be as the same way as when they are not there. Okay, this is all very clear and mentioned in our ahadith. So it's the same teaching and its source is, it derives with how you're supposed to be with your prophet, with your messenger. This is the ultimate, this is the absolute version of it. And the same thing the Holy Prophet just said applies to the teacher. Right? That was the whole point. This is why we're reading all of this. We're linking it to the Holy Quran. We're establishing the Quranic foundation for the hadith. And so, then the question that the verse answers is why? Why shouldn't I? Why is it that every time I call him or I address him or I speak in his presence that I have to lower my voice? And this is perhaps something confusing for us believers. 
the Quran is saying. You might think because he is humble, because he is modest, that he is just like you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want this confusion to be the case. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself explains to the believers, don't talk to him or in his presence as you do with each other. Yes, he is modest. Yes, he is humble. But he's not just like one of you. And here, the Quran says why. In this verse, in this verse, the Quran used فَوْقَ صَوْتِ nabi. Don't raise your voice over the voice of the Prophet. The verse before, it used Rasul. The verse before said, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَغُضُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ those who lower their voices in the presence of the Messenger of God. The Holy Quran just now gave two reasons, one after the other. You don't do this because he's not like one of you. He is the Prophet of God and he is the Messenger of God. The Quran is making a point here. He could have used the same term twice. It didn't. It made a point to say he is the Messenger and he is the Prophet. So respect and honor this. He doesn't just represent himself. He represents God. So in his presence, you use the right honor and the right respect with the Holy Prophet And then, and this is the, the, let's say the threat the Holy Quran says. And so if you do not, then all of your good deeds are going to be nullified. They're going to become nothing. Ihbat is you do good, good deeds and you go in the afterlife on the day of resurrection and they're not there. And the Quran has a lot of verses that talk about this notion, this principle that goes both ways. Sometimes you haven't done actions and you find their rewards in the afterlife. And sometimes you have done actions, bad actions, and they are nullified. And sometimes you have done good actions and they are nullified. And the Quran explains to us multiple, in multiple ways what instances, what reasons cause this type of outcome. And this is one of them. One of the things that someone may do is to dishonor, disrespect the Holy Prophet And one way is to use your voice to do it. Something that perhaps some of us we might think is very trivial or very silly. Yet the Holy Quran says, if you don't do this honoring, if this is how you engage with the Holy Prophet the risk you are facing now is that all of your good deeds are going to be nullified. Without you even realizing. You don't even realize that this is happening. So the big question is, when, why? for something that does not look like it's so serious. What has the person done? But there's something here that's implied. It means that there's something wrong with your faith. The manner in which you honor the Holy Prophet, the, the manner in which you deal with the Holy Prophet says a lot about your belief. It means that you don't really believe that he is a prophet of God, that he represents God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to talk to him this way or to be disrespectful in his presence. So either you don't really believe or you don't understand what you're doing. So if you, don't, you really don't believe, then you're a disbeliever. So it may look like you have good deeds, but the deeds are worthless. And in the case that you don't know, the Quran is now going to give you a little out. 
it's going to show a little bit of leniency. Because here it didn't say it's automatic that you lost all of your faith and all of your good deeds. It says you may. For fear of facing the risk that you may lose all of your good deeds. This is how it's worded. Okay? Because maybe, perhaps, you're innocent and you really didn't know what you were doing. But in that case, you still have to rectify it. And then the next verse is it says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَغُضُّونَ أَصْوَاتَهُمْ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ The same idea. أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ امْتَحَنَ اللَّهُ قُلُوبَهُمْ لِلتَّقْوَىٰ لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةٌ وَأَجْرٌ عَظِيمٌ Truly those who lower their voices in the presence of the Holy Prophet, the Quran says, in Messenger of God, they are the ones whose hearts God has tested for piety. This is an indication, the manner in which you behave outwardly, even if it looks like it's a simple action, tells a lot about the faith that you're carrying. The Quran says those who are able to do this despite whatever is going on, those who are able to control themselves, to control their voice, to constantly honor the Holy Prophet and respect him in all situations, not to precede him, not to decide things for him, those are the ones that God has truly, has tested their hearts for, for piety or God-fearing. And then the, uh, the verse ends, لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةٌ وَأَجْرٌ عَظِيمٌ To them there is a forgiveness and a great reward. And then, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجُرَاتِ I won't comment on these, but we said if we were to look at the five verses because they form a whole, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجُرَاتِ أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ صَبَرُوا حَتَّى تَخْرُجَ إِلَيْهِمْ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ So those who call you from behind the chambers, from behind the walls, most of them have no comprehension, have no understanding. That's why they behave this way. They have no intellect. They're not behaving like full human beings. If we say that the criteria of being a human being is to have aql, the Quran is saying, أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ Those who behave in this way, who dishonor you and call you out by your name in this loud, disrespectful way, most of them, because there might be other reasons, most of them, they do not have any intellect. They don't have any reason. And the Quran says, وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ And if they were patient, and they would wait for you to come out to them, instead of yelling in this dishonorable, disrespectful way, it would have been better for them. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ends by saying, and God is very forgiving, very merciful. Otherwise, it means that these people now, they've just lost all their faith. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes back and says, and God is very forgiving and very merciful, despite all of this dishonorable, disrespectful behavior with the Holy Prophet So, if we were to go back to the hadith, the hadith began with the Holy Prophet saying, the one who lowers his voice in the presence of scholars, by using the same terminology in the Quran. And we, we did the same thing, you will remember, Last week we started to talk about the ahadith in which the Holy Prophet was saying, the one who visits the scholar, it's as though he has visited me. The one who accompanies the scholar, the one who honors and respects the scholar, it's as though he has honored me, accompanied me, visited me. So again here, it's the same honor, the same favor, the same right that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to the Holy Prophet that the Prophet is now transferring to 
the person who represents him, the scholar, the teacher, so long as or to the extent that this person represents truly the teachings of the Prophet. Okay? So this is, as we said, the reasons around it are many. One of them is simply to say, the Holy Prophet is saying, for my sake, if you truly believe in me and you truly honor me and you truly respect me, then do the same for the person who is representing me. And this is the teacher and the scholar of truth, the teachings of the Holy Prophet And this is perhaps another one of these hadith. We could take the same hadith as we said, if we wanted to go back to the point we made when we began the entire discussion around teachers and scholars, we said that the true meaning of the teacher or the true meaning of the scholar is the imam. And so this takes a completely different dimension and a completely different meaning when the Holy Prophet says, whoever lowers his voice in the presence of the scholar, whoever lowers his voice in the presence of the teacher, if the teacher is the imam, it means that you obey them. That you do not say, he has, the imam says and I say. You can't lower your voice in this way. You can't have an opinion different than that of your imam. You can't have a, an idea or a belief or a decision different than that of your imam. So if you apply this to our history and where Islam is today, you understand a completely different meaning to this hadith of how did we end up here today? Because there are those who metaphorically and literally, they raise their voices over the imam, over the voice of the imam. The imam says, this is what we do. They say, no, we're going to do that. And the imam loses his voice and their voices are the ones that dominate. In any case. The next maybe subheading has to do with listening and learning. And because we spent a lot of time on this idea of listening, especially when we were talking about the, the learner and the importance of being disciplined around speech and learning how to listen, we spent a lot of time on this. So I, I don't want to dwell on this, very quick reminder. So Imam al-Baqir salam, and we have the same hadith from Imam Ali salam. He says, إِذَا جَلَسْتَ إِلَىٰ عَالِمْ فَكُنْ عَلَىٰ أَن تَسْمَعْ أَحْرَصَ مِنْكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تَقُولْ وَتَعَلَّمْ حُسْنَ الْإِسْتِمَاعِ كَمَا تَعَلَّمْ حُسْنَ الْقَوْلِ وَلَا تَقْطَعْ عَلَىٰ أَحَدٍ حَدِيثَهِ So Imam al-Baqir or Imam Ali salam says, because the hadith is narrated from both, when you sit in the presence of a scholar, be more eager to listen than to speak. And learn the art of good listening just as you learn the art of good speech. And we spent a lot of time on this, you will remember. And do not interrupt anyone while they are speaking. So here, the Imam is talking about a few points. The first one has to do with etiquettes. Manners and etiquettes in the presence of the scholar. Our theme here is the rights of the scholar, the rights of the teacher. But secondly, this also has, for selfish reasons, this is what I benefit from. So that I fully benefit from this gathering and this presence of the scholar, I should be in a state of receiving. Because if I'm the one doing the talking, then I'm not really receiving anything. I'm not really necessarily benefiting anything from that scholar. Okay? So be more eager to listen than to speak. 
and learn, and this is where we said this is an art. We might think that anyone knows how to listen. No. The Imams say, just like there is an art of speech and learning how to speak, not everybody knows how to speak. This is something that you have to learn. The Imam says, just like you spend time and energy perfecting the art of speech, learn the art of good listening. Become an excellent listener. So that you really fully understand what is being said. And then the Imam adds something else. And again, we can say this is manners and etiquettes of the gathering. And we can say, no, it has social ramifications. When the Imam says, and do not interrupt anyone while they are speaking. So this applies to the scholar. Don't interrupt the scholar, the teacher, when they're speaking, one. Or anyone else. If someone else is now taking the speech, let them finish what they have to say. You don't know what benefit you may get from this person talking or someone answering them. Let them finish their thought. Don't interrupt. And this, of course, is going to give us a full etiquette of gatherings that we should all learn. Next hadith from the Holy Prophet He says, سَائِلُ الْعُلَمَاءِ وَخَاطِبُ الْحُكَمَاءِ وَجَالِسُ الْفُقَرَاءِ So three pieces of advice from the Holy Prophet He says, ask your questions to the scholars. Converse with the wise. And sit with the needy. Sit with those who are poor. Spend time with those who are poor. So of course this is not exclusive. The Holy Prophet is not saying never ask a question from anyone who is not a scholar. That's not what the Holy Prophet is saying. Or never converse with anyone unless they are you know, someone who is recognized for their wisdom. Or never sit with anyone unless they are needy. It's not exclusive. But there's clearly benefits from doing these three specific things. That's what the Holy Prophet is hinting to. So maybe a quick also hint to perhaps the reasons why. When the Holy Prophet says, ask your questions to the scholars. He's basically saying, when you need an answer. Today we live a lot in a world where there's a lot of back and forth and discussion and conversation. And everything is up for grabs and we just keep talking about it endlessly. It's fine. But sometimes you actually need an answer. If you need an answer, if you have a real question that has an answer, don't waste time. The Holy Prophet says, سَائِلُ ulama." If you have questions, ask the scholar. Period. Save yourself time and go find the truth. Period. If there's conversation to be had, if there's discussion to be had, then choose those who are wise. For multiple reasons. One of them is that you learn. One of them is that this is a conversation worth having. Because it means because this person is wise, then this is probably someone who is objective, truth-seeking, respectful. The conversation is worth having with them. Whether you convince them of something, whether they convince you of something, whether you don't even reach a conclusion, the conversation is still worth having because the person has wisdom. Okay, so the Holy Prophet is trying to save us all a lot of headache and time and energy. He's saying if you're, there's a conversation to be had, have it with someone who has wisdom. And then the last one, spend time with those who have nothing. Those who are fuqara, jalisul fuqara. 
Spend time with those who are poor, who are needy. Be in their company. Eat with them, accompany them, sit with them. And here again, multiple layers. One layer can be that this is going to be good for them. Maybe you can help them. Whether it's through material means, maybe you can help them. Or in any other way. Maybe they just need a listening ear. Maybe they just need to vent and talk and complain and they want to feel heard and they want to feel seen. That's great. That's a great benefit by itself. And maybe you can actually help them even better. So it's good for them. It's good for the community and for society that no one is forsaken just because, for instance, they're poor or they belong to a different socioeconomic class. You're breaking this. Naturally, human beings tend to gather around those like them and they're always trying to move up. So they're always displaying flattery and coaxing, as we saw earlier, the Holy Prophet said, bootlicking to those who are of a higher status because you're trying to get in their circle. This hadith says, do the opposite. Break this cycle. Do the opposite. Go lower than you socioeconomically. Spend time with them. Change the nature, the constitution of your community and of your society. And then thirdly, for you. This is really good for you. For selfish reasons. Do this so that you learn humility. So that this opens your eyes to perhaps the life of someone else. Someone who is poorer than you. Who has even less than you. How do they live? What are their concerns? What are their priorities? Maybe it's going to change entirely the way you view your own life and your own priorities and how to be other decisions you make in life. If you don't do this ever, you're never going to be exposed to this. There's a whole dimension that's just missing from your life. So the Holy Prophet says, make a point. And you read the, the life of the Holy Prophet, the lives of our Imams, you would see that they made a point of this. It's well known how they would go, Imam Sajjad, for instance, he would find people and he had friends, he would sit with them in the street. In the time of Imam Ali salam, the blind man who never knew that this was Imam Ali salam, he only realized this was Imam Ali salam who would come and sit with him and eat every day in the street, on the ground. He realized this was Imam Ali salam, he just thought this is a good man. He realized that this is Imam Ali the day Imam Ali salam died. And they said, the Khalifa has been killed. And then he realized, after this man stopped coming, that this was Imam Ali all along. This is when the man stopped coming to see him. So all along, this was the Khalifa who came every day, sat beside him. He's a blind poor man in the street. He would sit beside him and have his dinner with him. The lives of our Ahlul Bayt, the Imams, they did a lot of this. And they didn't just teach it with words. Right? And this changes the type of community that we have if we do a lot more of this. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, in the same vein, he says, Jalis ahl al wara'i wal hikmah, wa akthir munaqashatahum, fa innaka in kunta jahilan alamuk, wa in kunta aliman is detta ilma. So he says, sit with the people of God fearing and wisdom. So the previous hadith from the Holy Prophet was more neatly into three categories. Here Imam Ali is going to confound 
combine three categories together. So first he says, sit with the people who have God-fearing and wisdom, or piety and wisdom. Wara is God-fearing. If you want to sit with people, you want to accompany people, spend time with them, choose people who have these two traits, God-fearing and wisdom. And then he says, engage in discussion with them frequently. Why? For if you are ignorant, they will teach you. The more you talk to them, the more they le you learn. And if you are knowledgeable, you will still end up with increased knowledge. You will still learn something. Because they have wisdom and they fear God. That combination, but in fact there's a third one here. Because clearly what the Imam is not saying is that this person, because they have God-fearing and they have wisdom, they also have knowledge. And that's why you learn just by spending time with them. So here the Imam combined all three into one person. He's saying spend time with the person who has God-fearing, wisdom, and knowledge. And then he adds, مُنَاقَشَةُ الْعُلَمَاءِ تُنْتِجُ فَوَائِدَهُمْ وَتُكْسِبُ فَضَائِلَهُمْ So engaging in discussion with the scholars yields their benefits and earns or acquires, allows one to acquire their virtues. The best way to get the benefit, the full benefit of the scholar is to engage with them. This is the only way that you get what is the true value of having scholars and teachers come out. Then we have a few ahadith. I chose a couple. A few ahadith that I would say bring together globally, bring together a lot of this in one hadith. So they combine the rights, they combine the etiquettes and the manners of being around the scholar and the teacher. So the first very famous one, and we have a very similar one from either Imam al-Hassan or Imam Ali alayhi salam. It's narrated from both. But the first one is from Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam, from Rasalat al-Uquq. Right? The treaty of Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam about rights. So in there, as the Imam lists the rights of, the rights of, one of them is the rights of the person who is your superior in knowledge, the Imam says. Your superior in knowledge. What is their right? So the Imam says, and there's two versions of this. So I'm going to read the, the popular version, and I'm going to read the second one because there are slight differences between them that I wanted to highlight. So the Imam says, وَلَا تُجِيبَ أَحَدًا يَسْأَلُهُ عَنْ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى يَكُونَ هُوَ الَّذِي يُجِيبُ وَلَا تُحَدِّثْ فِي مَجْلِسِهِ أَحَدًا وَلَا تَغْتَابَ عِنْدَهُ أَحَدًا وَأَنْ تَدْفَعَ عَنْهُ إِذَا ذُكِرَ عِنْدَكَ بِسُوءٍ وَأَنْ تَسْتُرَ عُيُوبَهُ وَتُظْهِرَ مَنَاقِبَهُ وَلَا تُجَالِسْ لَهُ عَدُوًّا وَلَا تُعَادِي لَهُ وَلِيًّا فَإِذَا فَعَلْتَ ذَلِكَ شَهِدَ لَكَ مَلَائِكَةُ اللَّهِ بِأَنَّكَ قَصَدْتَهُ وَتَعَلَّمْتَ عِلْمَهُ لِلَّهِ جَلَّ اسْمُهُ لَا لِلنَّاسِ So in this version, the Imam says, the right of your superior of knowledge is to show them or to show him great honor, <coughs> to display reverence in their gatherings, to give him the best of your attention, to approach him and engage with him with respect and positive reception. 
Do not raise your voice over theirs. That's why I said this one now combines all of it. Right? We just spoke about the voice, for instance, or honor and respect last week. You see here, all of it is combined into one. Do not raise your voice over theirs. Do not answer anyone who asks them something until they have responded. Do not speak to anyone else in their gathering. Don't create distractions on the side in the middle of the gathering. Do not backbite anyone in their presence. And this is something that can happen in different ways. First, it can happen just straight out. People who are used to backbiting, they'll just continue to backbite in every gathering. Right? You just do riba. It's a huge sin. The Imam is saying, don't commit a sin that you force him to fall into your sin in his presence. That's what he's saying. But why is this specific sin mentioned? Because this is a very easy sin to fall into when discussing things with someone who has knowledge. And we're going to see that. Because you want to say, but so and so said, and so and so thinks, and what do you think of this? Or so and so says that in their lecture, and they say this in their book. You don't need to mention names. Don't backbite. Bring the idea. Discuss the value of the thought in itself. Don't bring names. There's no need for names. You're making the scholar, this teacher, now fall into your sin. Now you have made them a part of your ghibah, a part of your backbiting. There's no need for that. Imam Sajjad says, don't mention anyone in their presence. You don't need to. And then there's a way to do this that is even disrespectful, which Imam Ali will mention. So do not backbite anyone in their presence. Then he says, defend them if their reputation is harmed. Conceal their faults. No one is perfect. They will make mistakes, but this is your teacher. This is your scholar. Defend their faults. Don't encourage people to focus on the mistakes and the shortcomings. Defend their reputation if they are harmed and conceal their faults. Make their virtues known. Make people focus on the good that they have to share. Do not accompany their enemies and do not make enemies of their friends. Because most likely you will lose them as a teacher. When you do that, the angels of God shall bear witness that you have approached that scholar and learned from them for the sake of God. Exalted is his name, not for the people. The other version of this ruwaya, and I don't want to spend time commenting on it, I think it's clear enough. The other version of this ruwaya, the beginning is entirely the same. As I've said, when you go back to these, uh, to the Rasalat al Hukuq, specifically of Imam al Sajjad, there are two main versions of it. So there are slight variations. And in this one, the reason I mention it is not just to mention it. It's because there are aspects, much more spiritual aspects mentioned here, or discipline aspects mentioned here that are not mentioned in the first. The first perhaps focused more on the etiquettes and the manners. Here there is a second dimension that is spiritual, one, and two, the responsibility that we tried to focus on a lot in the previous lectures. The responsibility that comes that now you know. You can't easily just say, I'm still learning, I'm just a learner, I only know a little bit. It's not enough. The moment you know a little bit, you're responsible for the little bit you know. And if you know a lot, you're a lot more responsible because you're responsible for everything you know. Okay, so we're going to see that very clearly in this version. 
So the beginning is the same. The Imam continues until he says, to approach them and engage them respectfully, with honor, with positive reception. And then the Imam says, You have to help the scholar over your own self. Which means the scholar is teaching you something spiritual. Something, it's knowledge that is supposed to affect your soul. But for that to work, you have to help the scholar by doing something to yourself first. So the Imam says, this is the right of the scholar over you. It's not fair to go to the scholar and you think you're not going to do anything. And the scholar is just going to dump information in your mind and suddenly you're just going to change. You have to do something yourself with the knowledge that is coming. You have to prepare yourself ahead so that this is actually going to have an effect on you. This is what the Imam is going to say. So he says, after he says, this is the right of your superior in knowledge, your teacher, he says, and providing him with assistance over yourself. About that type of knowledge or those parts of knowledge that are necessary to you. You need that knowledge. For that knowledge that you need from this person, help them over yourself. It's you and the teacher working together against yourself. That's what the Imam is saying. Help, be an assistant. Support the teacher over yourself. Especially for those parts of knowledge that are necessary for you to learn, that you don't have. بِأَن تُفَرِّغَ لَهُ عَقْلَكَ وَتُحَضِّرَهُ فَهْمَكَ وَتُذَكِّيَ لَهُ قَلْبَكَ وَتُجْلِيَ لَهُ بَصَرَكَ so the Imam is now going to give us the details. What does it mean that I'm going to support this spiritual teacher, the teacher of knowledge, the teacher of truth? So this is not someone who's teaching me math. Math is not really going to affect my soul. This is someone who's teaching me religious knowledge. This is supposed to affect my soul. I'm not learning the religious knowledge to accumulate information. Who cares how much I know? It's what's the effect of what I'm learning on my soul. So here the Imam says, you provide him with assistance over yourself for those parts of knowledge that are necessary to you by emptying your mind. Don't keep a lot of things in your mind when you attend the gathering, when you attend the lesson. Avoid the distractions. Empty your mind. Dedicate your mind only to what is being taught. So this is the first form of assistance to the teacher over yourself by emptying your mind, by preparing your understanding. You go there prepared. You know where you're going and what you're about to do. I'm prepared. Just like when you go to the gym, you prepare. There are people who prepare for an hour or two before going to the gym or three or ten. If I'm going to the gym, I have to sleep X number of hours and I have to eat this and I have to do that before going. Right? This is well known. Anything you want to do, it requires a bit of preparation. The Imam says, prepare your mind, prepare your understanding. You know where you're going and what you're about to do. You can't go with a distracted mind. And then he says, by enlightening or by purifying your heart. Make your heart enlightened, illuminated. تُذَكِّيَ لَهُ قَلْبَكِ Or it could be by purifying. It could also be تُذَكِّيَ لَهُ قَلْبَكِ Okay? So you purify your heart 
you sharpen your vision, the Imam says, basarak. You sharpen your vision, or more appropriately, you sharpen your insight, your ability to see through things, to connect things, to look a lot more deeply. Make that sharp for that lesson. Make it sharp for this teacher, for what they're giving you, so that you fully benefit from what is being shared with you. And all of this, you do how? The Imam says, you do all of this, You can achieve all of this by forsaking pleasures and rejecting desires. It's discipline. It's spiritual discipline. The more you can do that, the more it clears your mind and it gives you an ability to focus and learn and have a penetrating insight that you can see a lot further with the information that is being shared with you. Two people have the same information. It doesn't change them in the same way. They don't do the same thing with it. They don't interpret or reinterpret the world based on that information in the same way. What's the difference? One of them has a much sharper insight. You go further. It's not the physical world that you're looking at. It's how things connect. You're using your mind and your heart for this. And then the Imam, so now the Imam gave us all the ingredients. He gave us the key. All of this comes back to spiritual discipline. And then now the Imam is going to switch to the responsibility, which was not there in the first version. So he says, وَأَن تَعْلَمْ أَنَّكَ فِيمَا أَلْقَى إِلَيْكَ رَسُولُهُ إِلَى مَنْ لَقِيَكَ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْجَهْلِ So the Imam says, and you must know that you are an ambassador of the teachings conveyed to you by the messenger. You're now an ambassador. The moment you gathered, the moment you acquired this information, you are now a representative of the information that was given to you by this messenger. So some think that this means, you know, the prophet, the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No. The teacher, and everything we've been saying, the scholar, the teacher, has this honor and this respect and this rank. Why? Because they are a messenger. They are carrying the teachings of the Holy Prophet, the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to people. The moment that teaching has reached you and now you're carrying it, you have become an ambassador. You're now carrying. You are becoming the representative of this. So the Imam says, and you must know that you are an ambassador of the teachings conveyed to you by this messenger to those who are ignorant. When you find someone who doesn't have this knowledge that you now have, you are an ambassador of this knowledge. You have to find a way to get it to them. And that's why we've been saying from the beginning, it's not a black and white thing where you are either a learner or a scholar. In our religion, that doesn't exist. The moment you know a little bit, you are a scholar about the stuff that you know a little bit. You know more, you're a bigger scholar. You know a lot more, you're a much bigger scholar. It's a spectrum. It's not a black and white or you're either a learner or you're a scholar. You should be learning your whole life. You're a learner your whole life. And the moment you are a learner, you know something, you should teach it. You should find a way to communicate it in your own way, based on what you know. It should act on you and it should, you should act with it on the world. And so this is what the Imam is saying. You are now an ambassador of that knowledge 
And you have to impart it to those who are ignorant. Whoever does not know this, you have to now share it with them. And so here the Imam adds, فَلَزِمَكَ حُسْنُ التَّأْدِيَةِ عَنْهُ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَا تَخُنْهُ فِي تَأْدِيَةِ رِسَالَتِهِ وَالْقِيَامِ بِهَا عَنْهُ إِذَا تَقَلَّتَّهَا وَلَا حَوْلَ وَلَا قُوَّةَ إِلَّا بِاللَّهِ It is therefore your duty to represent his message to them in the most excellent way and not to betray him in fulfilling this message faithfully and acting on it if you have been entrusted with its delivery or because the imam is saying wala takhunhu fi ta'diyati risalatihi wal qiyam biha anhu idha taqallatha so this could mean if you have accepted if you have agreed to be entrusted with this knowledge then honor it and fulfill it so if you have accepted actively but the other meaning of this is that you have been entrusted with it that's it it's been put in your on your neck literally it has been put like a necklace on your neck if you've taken the knowledge you've accepted it and it's been entrusted on you so now act with honor and fulfill your duty in the most excellent way the imam said and then he ends with this which he does in most parts of the risala wala hawla wala quwwata illa billah and there is no power and no strength except in god and the fact that the imam says this may also mean that this is something difficult and you need the power of god and the strength from god to be able to do it because it's not easy it's not easy to honor the scholar in every way that he just mentioned and it's not easy to fulfill your duties now that you have carried the knowledge that has been imparted upon you the next hadith very similar from imam ali alayhi salam i said i have two hadith that i've selected that are combining a lot of this the global etiquettes manners rights of the teacher and the scholar so this one is narrated from Imam Ali alayhi salam and in another version from Imam al-Hasan alayhi salam. And it's Imam al-Sadiq who says, Imam Ali says. So the hadith is, إِنَّ مِنْ حَقِّ الْعَالِمِ أَنْ لَا تُكْثِرَ عَلَيْهِ السُّؤَالِ وَلَا تَسْبِقْهُ فِي الْجَوَابِ وَلَا تَجُرَّ بِثَوْبِهِ I'm going to read it entirely in Arabic so that it flows easier and uh, clearer in English. إن من حق العالم أن لا تكثر عليه السؤال ولا تسبقه في الجواب ولا تجر بثوبه وإذا دخلت عليه وعنده قوم فسلم عليهم جميعا وخصه بالتحية دونهم وإن كانت له حاجة سبقت القوم إلى خدمته واجلس بين يديه ولا تجلس خلفه ولا تغمز بعينيك ولا تشر بيدك ولا تساره في مجلسه ولا تطلب عوراته وإن زل قبلت معذرته وعليك أن توقره وتعظمه لله ما دام حافظا أمر الله ولا تكثر من قول قال فلان وقال فلان خلافا لقوله ولا تفشي له سرا ولا تغتاب عنده أحدا ولا تلج عليه ولا تلج عليه إذا مل ولا تضجر بطول صحبته فإنما مثل العالم مثل النخلة ينتظر بها متى يسقط عليك منها شيء والمؤمن العالم أعظم أجرا من الصائم القائم الغازي في سبيل الله وإذا مات العالم 
ثلم في الإسلام ثلمة لا يسبدها شيء إلى يوم القيامة So slightly longer but I won't comment because we gave the commentary before so we'll just read the hadith It is indeed the right of a scholar that you do not burden him with excessive questions nor tug at their garment So when you talk to them sometimes you want to get someone's attention so you may pull their clothes Okay? And then the imam is going to continue when you enter in his presence and there are others in his company, greet everyone and offer him a special salutation or a unique salutation. And if he needs something, be the first among them to serve him. Sit in, from, in front of him, not behind him. Do not wink with your eyes. Do not point with your hands. Okay, so it's very, the imam is going even in the simplest of Manners, and these are not only for the teacher and the scholar. This is in general, but the imam makes a point to mention them. Okay, do not speak to him privately in a public gathering. Do not look for his faults and shortcomings. And when he slips, when he makes a mistake, when he slips, accept his apology. And you must honor him greatly and respect him for the sake of God so long as he is fulfilling the commandments of God. So long as you see that this is someone who is trying their best to align themselves with the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are still worthy of respect and, and honor. Do not frequently attribute contradictory statements to his by saying, but so and so said this and so and so said that. This is literally what the Imam is saying. Do not reveal his secrets. Do not backbite in his presence. Do not keep insisting on him if he is tired. Do not become impatient or bored due to the length of his company. The lecture is getting too long. For the scholar is like a date palm. One should always be in anticipation when its fruits fall. This is a well-known principle where for those who at that time, they all raised palm trees. They know that you don't go picking on the dates. You let them fall. It means that they are fully ripe and fully sweet. If you go take them before then. So he's saying, wait for the knowledge to come your way. Don't keep poking at it and taking it before it's time, before it's ripe. Okay, and there's a lot of reasons for that. For the scholar is like a date palm. One should always be in anticipation when its fruits fall. The scholar deserves a great reward, a greater reward than the one fasting, praying, and struggling in the way of God. And when a scholar passes away, their passing causes a gap in Islam that cannot be filled until the day of resurrection. So in other words, a scholar of a bigger caliber, like the one being described, like the ones we're talking about, and this is a well-known hadith, that we often hear, we often see when any of our great scholars pass away. This is where it's coming from. Or the Imam says there's a hole in the fabric of Islam that appears when that scholar passes away and that hole will stay a hole. No one will replace it. It will stay a hole until the day of resurrection. That's it, because every scholar is unique. There are no two scholars who are the same. There's something that they bring that no one else is going to ever bring has ever brought or will ever bring. These are their special contributions. Okay? And by the way, we have similar hadith for the mu'min in general. Just the believer is the same. There, We have a hadith that tell us, for instance, every believer has a special gate. When you pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you are born into this world and you start praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's a special gate created just for you. 
This is the gate through which your prayers go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's only yours. No one else will ever share it with you. And that's it. It closes after your death. That's something that will never happen again. You are unique. Your prayer is unique. What goes through that channel to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unique. This is uniquely yours. So imagine if in addition to you just being an individual, you're also a scholar. You're affecting people. Okay, so of course the hadith are going to say there is going to be a hole in the fabric of this religion or in the fabric of the world that will never be patched, that will never be closed off when a scholar passes away until the day of resurrection. Two quick hadith and we end with this. So the last subheading, so inshallah we finish the rights of the teacher and the scholar today. The last subheading, and I think it's been clear, but just so that we have a couple of ahadith directly related to it, obedience, service, servitude. So that when you are in the presence of, or when you have found a teacher or a scholar that matches this description, it has to mean something that they teach you this knowledge. It has to affect, and in a way, you are now at their service or at the service of their knowledge. It has to affect how you behave. So you are now a servant of the knowledge. Or to say it more metaphorically and more loosely, you are their servant. So the Holy Prophet says, مَنْ عَلَّمَ شَخْصًا مَسْأَلَةً فَقَدْ مَلَكَ رَقَبَتَهُ فَقِيلَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ أَيَبِيعُهُ فَقَالَ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامُ لَا وَلَكِنْ يَأْمُرُهُ وَيَنْهَاهُ so the Holy Prophet says, whoever teaches someone a matter, they have now acquired or indeed acquired ownership of them. You are now owned by the person teaching you. So they asked the Holy Prophet, they said, O Messenger of God, do you mean that he may buy him, sell him? And that way, he owns him just because he taught him something? And the Holy Prophet said, no. It means that he commands him and forbids him. If you are truly a learner under a teacher and they are teaching you something, if they're, what they're teaching you is going to come with, you do this and you do not do that. You ought to live based on those teachings, based on that knowledge. Are you not their servant or the servant of their knowledge? And the next hadith from Imam Ali salam. this one is more direct and I'll end with this one. From Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, إِذَا رَأَيْتَ عَالِمًا فَكُنْ لَهُ خَادِمًا If you encounter, if you see, or if you encounter a scholar, then become his servant. Serve him. If you become, if you encounter a scholar. So first, the obvious meaning of this is, this is part of honoring and respecting. There is no greater way than to show honor and respect than to serve the scholar or to serve the teacher. Great. And I think this part is clear. Okay. Secondly, related to this, it's also reminding us of the role. Ahlul Bayt are not lightly going to say, go and serve someone. A religion, generally speaking, does not want people to be servants or submitted to other people. 
Our religion gives a lot of importance to our dignity and our freedom and our critical thinking and and so it's not an easy thing for our religion to say you find someone just go serve them. So this has to be linked with the importance that this person is playing. Right? The importance that our religion gives to or the role that it gives to this person. Inshallah this part is clear. That's first. The second part of this hadith is talking about obedience. I think this part is clear too. The third part, I think that is not as clear. Perhaps this has to do with the fact that people who are truly reaching these levels of knowledge, where you say, this is a great scholar. So if you encounter them, go and serve them. Obviously, to reach that level, and to continue playing that role, this requires a great dedication. While everybody else is doing something else, this person is dedicated to knowledge, to acquiring knowledge, to using knowledge, to teaching knowledge. So perhaps what this hadith is referring to is that if you want to use this person appropriately, let them focus on this. Don't let them get too distracted with other things. Let them fully be dedicated to this. Serve them. In those things that are not related to this, serve them. So that they can fully dedicate themselves to the knowledge and what they can do with it. And this is specialization. All of you work. If you were to, I don't know, be a manager and you work in in some sort of administrative capacity. If you hire someone with a PhD, would you have them performing very manual or very administrative easy tasks when you hire them? Or would you want to use their knowledge as a specialist, as someone with a PhD in their field, to be focused on that work that they can do, on that knowledge that they're a specialist in? And this can apply to anything. It doesn't need to be someone with a PhD. If I have someone who's a mechanic, if I have someone who's an expert in construction, if I have someone who's an expert in graphic design, it makes a lot more sense to use them fully, to fully benefit from what they can bring if I put them on the work that they can do, that they are dedicated to. I can free them up from the rest of the work. And in fact, if you want to look at it from a business point of view, it's a lot more costly to have this person do that kind of work. You want to fully benefit from what they have, they have to be outputting, they have to be giving you the best that they have to give. This is what you're sustaining. This is the cost that you're putting in. If I put all of this cost to generate this type of individual in a community or in a society, I want to be able to fully leverage that, to fully use that. There's a story to make it very practical and we'll end with this. They say that one of our great scholars, very well known, the author of the tafsir called Al-Mizan, Sayyid al-Tabatabai, Muhammad Hussain al-Tabatabai. He spent 20 years, 20 and a couple years, writing his tafsir. It took him about 20, 22 years to write the tafsir. 
and the way they wrote their tafasir at that time, which was not that long ago, but still, it was certainly not like how I prepare. I sit in an office in front of a computer and I click on links and I open resources here and there and I have access to thousands of books on a computer through the internet. So when we say 22 years of non-stop work, it wasn't in this comfortable, easy environment. He had to actually go and acquire the books and get them and sit and physically be there working day and night by hand to write. And in fact, he wrote more than one version of this tafsir. There was a draft and then there's a version that was finally published. It's a lot of work. So this is the background, just so that we know from what I'm about to say. In old age, later in his life, his wife passes away before him. It's very normal. It happens to all of us. Someone close to you passes away. And especially in the case of a scholar, we expect scholars to show the most patience, the most resilience, the most spiritual, theological understanding of death. Correct? This is something to be expected. It's inevitable. It's coming. We should embrace it. This is where we're all headed. Except that in his case, he would cry a lot. To the point where some of his students and some of those who are close to him came to him and they said, you're maybe overdoing it. You need to, you know, take it easy on yourself. It's almost like they're telling him it's not appropriate for a scholar of your caliber to cry this way for his wife. We all die. You're going to die and we're all going to die. Why would you feel this way? Why would you continue to cry for so long and in this, with that much intensity and that much passion? And so he would tell them, you don't know what this person represented in my life. I'm not crying because she's just dead or that she was just my wife. He told them for 20 some years that I wrote my tafsir and we had young children in a small house. I never once heard a child come distract me or cry or remove me from my work. I was able to sit and work with dedication, with sacrifice, yes, on my side. But there's someone who's perhaps sacrificing even more than me to allow me to sit here and do this work. And so in his case, this is what he's crying about. It's in recognition. And so he would say the famous words that he says, because a lot of people say Tafsir al-Mizan is perhaps the greatest Tafsir ever written in our Shia history. Right? And he would say his famous words. He would say the reward of this Tafsir is entirely owned by my wife. She's the one who put in all the work. All I had to do is just to sit and research and write. She's the one who had to make sacrifices so that I can dedicate myself to knowledge. Okay? And so when Imam Ali السلام, says something like, It can go a lot further than just, you know, someone who needs something and I go serve them. If you want to fully benefit from what this person can do, it might also require sacrifices on your side. Right? And in these cases, we know, the scholars know, because this is not easy. And being dedicated, if you want this person to be 
truly using their knowledge and truly influencing people with their knowledge, that perhaps they need a little bit of help or serving, right? So that this person can actually be dedicated to this, which is exactly what happens in every aspect and in every area of life. This is how our lives are. And you look at society and you see that people who are specialized, they have a certain amount of service performed for them so that they can be fully dedicated to this type of work that they are doing. Inshallah, all of this is clear. So we'll continue with the merits of the scholars. Inshallah, we won't take too long for the merits of the scholars. And then we'll move on to the next subheading. A couple of questions, comments. He became, sorry, a farmer. Okay, so yeah, did say Tabatabai become a farmer at the end of his life? No, it wasn't at the end of his life. Um, Sayyid Tabatabai, very quickly, and it's very interesting, and maybe lessons for all of us too. Um, he was sustained um, financially by some people in order to do his studies in the seminary. And at some point, that sustenance, that financing stopped. They could no longer finance him. And so he quit the Hauza for perhaps seven years or perhaps a little bit longer. And he went back to a piece of land that he owned in Tabriz. And he lived off of that land as a farmer. And then his affairs got a little bit better and he was able to come back. And then he came back to the Hauza and continued his life as a scholar. Okay.